Mephibosheth, right? And like Jabez, his life was also a life that was full of pain, right? His life is also a powerful picture of someone who is carried by the Lord. And so I'm going to title the message this morning, Free from Shame and Restored to Reign. Free from shame and restored to reign. Now it's interesting uh, about Mephibosheth's story because we get a glimpse into his life when he is very young. Very few biblical characters do you get a glimpse into their life when they're very young. But we get a, we get a glimpse into Mephibosheth's life when he's just, a, when he's just a, a toddler. In fact, well, maybe a little older than toddler. He, he's five years old. And how many know when, when, you're, when you're a five-year-old, it's like life is really big and you're really excited to live life, right? I remember when, when my daughters were five years old, uh, they would want to wake up early and they would just want to do stuff, right? And it's like, oh man, these, these people are just soaking life in. Life is, is a wonder to them. And that's what I... I imagine that this boy Mephibosheth, when we meet him and he's five years old, he, he is growing up as the grandson of the king of all of Israel, the first king of Israel. Israel's still united as the 12 tribes at this point. So it's a great and, and glorious budding kingdom. And here we have King Saul, and then we have his son, who is the second in command, the general of his army, Jonathan, who's going to take over for Saul after Saul dies according to Saul's mind. And then we have Jonathan's first son, who is Mephibosheth. So here this five-year-old boy, he's not just living in the palace of the great king of Israel, but what is he being to do? He, he, he's being groomed as the prince of Israel to one day become a king. But guess what happens? Well, disaster strikes. And that's when we first read of him. We first read of this, this boy who is destined for the throne. He's destined to reign. But immediately, tragedy cuts that short. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. Now, this is just sort of how his story starts. In fact, his story kind of ends that way, too. It's kind of what people call in literature an inclusio, where you begin with something and you end with something because it wants to emphasize something about his life, that he's lame. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't born lame. It's going to go on and tell us how he became lame. He was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made hastily, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Wow. Now, um, think about this. It says news from Jezreel came. What was that news? Well, it was the news that Saul, his granddaddy, and Jonathan, his daddy, had died in battle, right? They both died together. In fact, Saul was so, so ashamed at the end of his life when, when uh, all of his soldiers fell around him and all of his generals fell around him that he basically took the sword and, and had his servant strike him through with the sword. He, he died in utter despair. And news about the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan, it reaches the palace, okay, which is in Gibeon at this point. 
And here it comes. I'm sure it's an emotional messenger. And what happens? The whole palace goes into a frenzy. It goes into chaos. Are these enemies that just destroyed Saul and that just destroyed Jonathan, they're going to show up at the palace steps any moment. So what do they do? It says that in their frenzy, in their haste, the one who is assigned to care over Mephibosheth, she picks him up in her arms and she starts running and she probably trips or something and Mephibosheth is flung from her and he hits something and, and we're told that he becomes paralyzed. He becomes lame in both his feet. He no longer can walk, right? He, and so, so now um, he, he's a cripple, right? He was whole. He was destined for the throne. But now he's broken, hoping to just find a hiding place where he could continue to live in some kind of peace, right? At this point, he goes from the prince of Israel to a fugitive, an enemy of the state. His worldview over it, it, within the course of minutes changes from a worldview of wonder of what the world had in store from him to a worldview of fear. Instead of being a picture of glory, he became a picture of shame and fear and condemnation. And that's exactly what his name means. And I don't think it's an accident that his name is introduced, not at the beginning of his story, but after he has fallen. Mephibosheth in Hebrew simply means big shame. Or it could be this, one who scatters shame. So, you know, I think it's possible that this wasn't his name given upon birth, but rather the name that stuck with him after that cataclysmic moment in his life. For it pictures his fallen state, well, a state that is filled with shame and scatters that shame to those around him because he is associated with a fallen empire, a fallen line, a fallen princehood that will not rise again. And Mephibosheth's story really parallels the primal story of man, which of course is the story of who? Adam and Eve. And, and what do Christians call Adam's sin that happened in the Garden of Eden? We call it the fall. The fall. Why? Because Adam fell from his position as God's son, from his position of innocence, from his position of fellowship in the garden sanctuary as a king who was destined to rule and reign the world from God's throne, destined to reign over all creation. And, and, and in fact, before he fell, before he sinned and, and, and committed high treason against God with Eve, this is what his state is described like in Genesis 2.25. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's what God wants us to know about their original state. They were people who felt no shame. But you know, the very moment Adam bit into that forbidden fruit, he fell from that joyous, wondrous, shame-free position with God immediately to being absolutely inundated in his whole psyche, in his whole being with shame. He was Filled to the gills with shame. This is what Genesis 3, 7 says after he bites into the forbidden fruit. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Before, they didn't know that. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Does that help with their shame? Well, let's see. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sounds like the fig, the fig leaves didn't help very much, right? He was immediately from a, a presence of joy where he had joyous fellowship with the Lord and would have rejoiced when he heard God's presence coming to him in the garden. Now he has the exact opposite reaction. He runs and he hides for fear. Why? Because God had told him the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Adam knew what? He knew that he deserved a death sentence. He knew that he deserved condemnation. Right? And, and uh, just as Adam went into hiding because he was full of fear and shame, what does Mephibosheth do when he falls? We're told that he goes into hiding. In fact, we're told the town he goes to. It's a town called Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar in, in Hebrew, it means this. It means no pasture. Or it can also mean no word. What is that a picture of? Well, who is the word? Jesus Christ. Who is the one who gives us green pastures? Jesus Christ. It's a place that is devoid of the presence of God. You know, when someone doesn't have God's word, when someone doesn't have God's pasture to feast on, when they don't have the pasture of the local church, you know what? They're going to be people who are filled with shame. They're going to be like Mephibosheth, right? And they're going to be people who scatter that shame around them. They might try to put on good fig leaves, right? They might try to appear nice to the world, but I tell you what, on the inside, something is going to be gnawing at them, and that is the sense of shame and the sense of condemnation that comes with those who aren't fellowshipping in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit and with fellow saints, right? So, so what happened to Adam when he was in that place of shame? We're, we're told that God came to seek him out. Adam, where are you, right? You know, that has always been God's character. Even when man sin and deserves judgment and death and they're filled with condemnation, God comes to seek and to save that which was lost. I think of Jesus in, in Luke 19. Remember, Jesus, he always ate with the wrong sort of people according to the Pharisees of his day. And in Luke 19, he just happened to be eaten with a tax collector, not just any tax collector, but he was the chief tax collector. He was a guy the Pharisees really didn't like. And what did he see when he saw that short-statured tax collector on the sycamore tree? He said, Zacchaeus, come down from there. You know, I'm going to come over to your house, and we're going to have a feast today, right? <laughs> and, and, and what does it say after they get mad? Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He says this in, in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The, the beautiful thing about God is that God is love, 
and he loves his fallen, shameful, disobedient people who deserve condemnation, right? He comes to restore. He comes to renew. In fact, he comes to take the penalty of their sin and their condemnation and their shame on his behalf, right? This is what God is like. He, he, he wants to take the penalty that you and I deserve. And he shows that to mankind from the very beginning. What does he do after he sees Adam and Eve in their fig leaves? He says, that's not going to cut it, right? This is what it says in John, Genesis 3.21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. How do you make a tunic from skin? You got to skin an animal. What happens if you skin an animal? It's going to be dead, right? And so God enacts the first sacrifice. And what does he do with that first sacrifice? He says this first sacrifice, this innocent animal that is slain on your behalf, it's going to cover you. And when this covers you, now you can come in my presence shame-free. Now you can come in my presence condemnation-free. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the sinner receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he died on that cross and paid for the penalty of your sin, died the death that you deserve, took all your sin and your shame and carried it down to death and left it there forever in the grave. Well, when you place your faith on that innocent sacrifice, that Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and you receive Him, you not only have your sin that's imparted to Him, you have His righteousness that's imparted to you. Amen? And when Jesus and when God sees you, he says, come on in in my fellowship. You no longer have to be full of shame. You no longer have to be Mephibosheth, right? This is good news. You know, the goal of God uh, with, a, uh, with Adam in providing the shedding of blood and the sacrificial um, animal was ultimately to restore him to fellowship with him. And um, the thing is, is that God wanted to do this for all of Adam's family that fell in his fall. You know, um, think of what happened to Mephibosheth. He was not the one who sinned, right? In fact, he was not the one who fell. Who fell? His nurse. Yet what happened to Mephibosheth? He suffered the consequence of that fall. That lady who ran in haste because she was fearful, just like Adam, and she fell just like Adam, what happens to Mephibosheth? He suffered the consequence of that fall that wasn't even his own fall. I want to make this point. Point number one is this. When Adam fell, all humanity fell. We all became naked and full of shame. We all became Mephibosheth. Now this is... A doctrine that's taught all throughout Scripture is called, you know, it has to do with the representative head. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about it often. In Hebrews 7, uh, Hebrews 7, uh, uh, Paul, I believe, is writing Hebrews, and, and he's making an argument there that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. And one of the reasons he says that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi, is because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And Levi was in Abraham's loins. And so Levi paid that tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek. Now, Levi wasn't be born till several more generations. And yet the book of Hebrews is saying that, a, uh, that <laughs> Levi paid the tithe through Abraham. 
Well, it's the same sort of thing that, that is going on here. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam became full of shame, we all became full of shame. And so just as Adam needed to receive that gift of righteousness, that gift of restoration, each and every one of Adam's descendants needs to receive that righteousness and that gift of uh, restoration. Now look at how Paul talks about the fall in Romans, in Romans 5.18. He says this, Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam's, Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, right? Not just Adam is full of condemnation, all men are. Even so, through one man's righteous act, who's that? Jesus Christ. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now you, you don't have uh, the, the verdict of condemnation, but those who receive Christ have the verdict, uh, the verdict of condemnation. Of, of, um, uh, justification of life. The verse before it, it says this. There, there is a condition. Those who receive. Those who receive the abundance of grace and those who receive the gift of righteousness move from a state of being in death to a state, it says, of reigning in life. They are the ones who shall reign in life. Meaning, you can go from a state of being a fugitive and low to bar, with no word, with no pasture, full of condemnation, back to you, where you're restored as a prince. You're restored as a child of the king. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places, and you have victory in this life because of what Jesus has done for you. You can reign through the abundance of grace. Isn't that good news? You know, just, and it has nothing to do with you. Isn't that good news? You know, just as God sought out Adam in his sin with a promise and a covenant in order to show him his grace and his favor, so Mephibosheth was sought out on the basis of a covenant in order to be shown grace and favor. A little later in, in 2 Samuel, we're told what happens to Mephibosheth after he's lived in Lodabar for about 20 years. Okay? How do we know it's been about 20 years? Well, now he has a son, okay? So he's been living and hiding. He's been living in a shame-filled situation for a long time. You know, he's been living dependent on others as a cripple. He, he, he's been living, uh, you know, with a worldview of just despair. And, and what happens? Let's read it in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. So this is after David has put down all of his enemies. He's reigning in Jerusalem, and, he, and he's, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. And this is what it says. It says, now David said, apparently he's speaking to his court advisors, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why? Because he had a covenantal commitment to Jonathan. And he's saying, I'm going to make good on the covenant I made for Jonathan. So I want to show someone favor, unmerited favor, my good grace. I want to show them that on the basis of a pre-existing covenant I have someone. I don't want to show someone favor based because they deserve it, based because they're good. But is there anyone left of Saul's house? Because I want to show them covenantal favor. In verse 2 it says, And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So this was a guy who lived with Saul, probably, and Gibeon, probably saw the little boy Mephibosheth growing up and kept in contact with him, right? 
And so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. So, what does Ziba announce? He says, There is a candidate to be shown your covenantal favor, David. And one of the, you know, of course, great friendships in the Bible is the friendship of David and Mephibosheth's daddy, Jonathan, right? In fact, you know, we're told of a deep bond, a deep love that they shared for one another. Jonathan, like I said, he was next in line to inherit the throne, right? He was, he was groomed for that position, and yet Jonathan understood something. He understood that he would never be in that place, right? He understood that David was anointed by the Lord and that he was to reign. And so Jonathan wasn't behind really his dad, even though, of course, he honored him as the king. But Jonathan's heart really was with David. And we're told that Jonathan and David, they made a covenant. And this is what it says in, in 1 Samuel 18.3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor, even to his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Everything that symbolized his authority as the number two guy in the nation, he hands over to David, right? And, and so David, he's... He's probably got a reminder. When you make a covenant, really what you do in a biblical sense, you cut a covenant, right? So they make markings probably in their wrist. You know, they, they might have put a, a little gravel in there or something so it wouldn't fully heal normal. So, so they would have markings that reminded them of their covenant. So we might imagine as David is in his throne there in Jerusalem, he might be thinking about his covenant because he's reminded of the covenant that he's looking at. And he's saying, you know what, I have a covenantal obligation. Blood has been shed for me to show favor to someone, not on the basis of their goodness, but on their basis of a covenant I made with my friend Jonathan. You know, this is, um, this is uh, the next point I want to make is this. Our righteousness is found in Christ alone. Our righteousness is found with Christ alone. Our right standing with God is found in Christ alone. Mephibosheth's right standing with the King David, who was it found in? Was it found in himself? No, it was found in David's covenant that he made with Jonathan alone. It had nothing to do with him. His ability to stand before the king and to receive the favor of the king had to do with the work of another. It is the same with us. Our ability to stand in the presence of God, to come boldly to His throne, is because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.9, Paul, he talks about his pedigree. 
in Philippians 3, he's boasting. He's saying, I was the best guy in Judaism, right? I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, you know who else was of the tribe of Benjamin? Saul and Jonathan and Mephibosheth. That's why Saul, Paul's name is what? Saul. I'm not only of the tribe of Benjamin, but I'm called by the number one guy of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, Saul. And he's boasting how according to the law, you know, he, he, he basically has done everything he can to fulfill the law. And yet he says this. He says, I count all of that pedigree I have, I count it as rubbish. I count it as garbage. And then he says this in Philippians 3.9, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. How are you righteous before God? By faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, it is by faith, our faith ultimately in Christ's faithfulness. In fact, the way that Paul writes this, it can read either, it can read either uh, by uh, um, through faith in Christ, or it can be read as through uh, Christ's faithfulness. I think that Paul intends us for us to read it both ways, right? That we are righteous on the basis of Christ's faithfulness and our faith in his faithfulness, right? Not in our faithfulness, but in Christ's faithfulness. It's kind of like what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I want to read the NET version to you. He says this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How is he reigning in life? How are we reigning in life? How are we reigning in fellowship with God? Well, we are only reigning because of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we have faith in that fact that I'm being shown favor. I'm being shown righteousness. I'm given a seat at the king's table because of another Jesus Christ, right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. All other ground is seeking sin, right? He is my light. He is my strength. He is my song. 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 says this. Um, Jonathan is speaking to David. He says, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. When is David saying this? After the enemies of David have been cut off. This is when he's saying, Is anyone left of the house of Jonathan? He's remembering what Jonathan said to him. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of of David's enemies. So David, he's faithful to the covenant, and he searches for one of uh, Jonathan's household, and he finds him. Look what it says after he's found, 2 Samuel 9, 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here's your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. 
Look at the first thing it said about what they do for him. It says that they brought him out of the house of Mekir from Lodabar. I imagine David sent like one of his royal chariots or something, right? And they bring him in that royal chariot. They bring him to Jerusalem. And then what do they got to do? Well, he's lame. He can't walk to the king. They probably carry him the rest of the way into the palace, right? Maybe they, they get like one of those palaquins where, you know, they got four guys carrying it and he's on a, a seat or something like that. I don't know. But they got to carry him. They got to get him there somewhere. And, and, and once he, he's placed before the king, he, he falls prostrate face down before David. He might be trembling. He might be full of fear. He remember, he is of the enemy of the house of David. He was in hiding. He is a fugitive of the state. He deserved to die. In fact, according to his own witness in the Bible, he says he was a dog and deserved nothing but death. But what does he hear? He says, do not fear. I'm going to show you kindness and grace, not because of you, but because of your father, Jonathan. And that is a picture of you and me. When we fall at the feet of Jesus, when we place our faith in him, guess what? We have a pronouncement over us where the father says, I'm going to show you my favor for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because he cut a covenant when he died on that cross, when those nails were pierced through his hand, those scars forever remain. And when he is on heaven and he is seated on the throne and John saw him there in the book of Revelation and, and the angel said, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is overcome and he is worthy to open the scrolls. And John, he looks and says to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And instead he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. He sees a lamb that was sacrificial. He sees Jesus covered in all of his covenantal markings. That is what Jesus looks like upon the throne in heaven today. He is covered with the covenantal markings that he shed for the redemption of the entire world. And he's saying, who is going to go out and announce the good news? Who, are going to, who is going to bring people, carry people before me and say and, and allow me to announce the good news that I'm going to show them favor on the basis of a covenant I made with my Father, an eternal covenant that cannot be broken? It's good news we have. All you have to do is receive it. All you have to do is fall, fall prostrate and say, My Lord and my God, my King and my Master. You know, Mephibosheth was... Uh, was so grateful for it. Let, let's go on and read what happens next in verse 8. 2 Samuel 9, 8. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, servants, uh, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for you, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Mephibosheth's got a whole crew working for him now, right? Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. So he's there with Solomon. He's there with Absalom. He's there with Adonijah. He's there with all of the great ones, right? Maybe he's buddy-buddy with Solomon. I don't know. But he's treated like Solomon. 
He's treated like the king's son. It says that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micha, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. <laughs> this is the last point I want to make. God's unmerited favor toward us empowers us to walk in loyal love to Him. God's unmerited favor toward us, that is what empowers you, okay? Not your own, you know, self-work, not your own flesh. You'll, you'll never be good enough according to the flesh. It's God's unmerited favor towards you that will empower you to be loyal to Him and walk in loyal love to Him. And that's what we see at the end of Mephibosheth's story. We just don't see him restored now, probably someone in his 20s, eating at the king's table, giving all of his inheritance back, and you know, just having fellowship every day with the king at mealtime. No, we see someone who that favor affected him. And it affected him in such a way that he was loyal to David even unto death. So what we see at the end of David's life is David's life ended really sad, right? His son mounts a coup against him, Absalom. And we see David, he's crying, he's weeping. He has to cross over the Kidron. He goes up the Mount of Olives. He's fleeing Jerusalem. He doesn't fully know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, there were a few people who, who in, stayed in Jerusalem, who remained loyal to David. One of them was a guy who couldn't get around by himself, right? He couldn't run away with David, and his name was Mephibosheth. And this is um, it, what it says. After David comes back from his exile, after Absalom is defeated, after David comes back to Jerusalem, it says this in 2 Samuel 19.24, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet. Um, I'm guessing that means he didn't trim his toenails or do any other foot care, I guess. I don't know what it fully means. He had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm in full solidarity with David. I'm going to be fully loyal to him and not to Absalom. And I'm going to show that, because there's going to be people who are slandering me behind my back. There were. Ziba was slandering Mephibosheth to David behind his back, saying that Mephibosheth has sided with Absalom. And it wasn't true. So Mephibosheth, you know, to be able to show that this indeed wasn't the case, what does he do? He goes into this state of mourning and into unkempt care. And so David, right, he is merciful to him when he returns. Now, um, you know, that's a picture of you and me. We have been shown so much grace and so much mercy that our act of living in obedience to King Jesus, of following Him in loyal love, of doing what He says, it's all in response to what He's done for us. That's what, how, how Paul begins his great depiction of the Christian life. Paul's great depiction of the Christian life is Romans chapter 12. It tells us what a Christian life should look like. And at the beginning of Romans 12, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, it says, Therefore, in view of God's great mercies, meaning of the last 11 chapters I just wrote about in Romans, about how Christ has redeemed us from sin, death, and the, and, 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 you know, the power of sin, and, and the penalty of death, and, and all of that consequence that comes with it. Now, in view of what Christ has done for you, therefore, in view of His great mercies, 
what? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. He was a dead sacrifice for you. Now you become a living sacrifice for him. You become like Mephibosheth. In great gratitude for his grace, you live in loyal love to him. This is the last verse I want to end with. It's this. It says 2 Samuel 9.13 So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. And here's the last point. We must continually, we must feast continually with Jesus and on Jesus to live free from condemnation and shame. I tell you what, if you are going to live free in your life from condemnation, from shame, from fear, from just an, a state of unworthiness, from the power of sin and all that comes with it, you got to feast on Jesus. You have to feast on his word. You have to partake of communion. You have to get around a body of believers who are of the same mindset or the same mentality, who said, no, we are king's children. We are those who are seated in heavenly places. We have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We have been washed. We have been made new. We have been restored. We have been redeemed. And now our lives are going to say so, right? Because we're gathered around the table as, as his children. And before we gather around the table this morning and partake of communion, you know what we get to do? We get to see someone washed in water, amen? We get to see another baptism. And this one is exciting. Mark, uh, you, most of you know Mark Gershek. A lot of you know uh, Mark Gershek's friend, Mark. And uh, that's who is being baptized today, amen? So we're going to actually have Mark who is going to baptize Mark, the double Marks. And uh, did you want to say something up here, Mark, or you want to say it out there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great, well, I'll walk out there with you guys, and we'll do the baptism. Cool.